certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh, God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. In February 1988, Bradley Edwards, the man accused of the Claremont serial killings, attacked a teenage girl sleeping in her bed. Today, she faced her attacker in court. Thanks for joining us for day 10 of Claremont in Conversation. I'm Natalie Bongiolo. Also in the studio today, we've got Tim and Alison Fan. Hello both. Hi there. So you were both in court today and I can only imagine this must have been a very daunting experience for this witness today. Well, she actually did know him from because they went to school together, but of course she didn't identify him on that night. She didn't really look at him, did she, Tim? She just gave her testimony. He looked down yeah. most of the time. He looked a little bit sheepish or just a bit... He didn't seem to express much, but she recounted um, these rather bizarre details of... Um, not being panicked by the attack because she thought it was her boyfriend when she woke up and found someone on top of her. So she didn't scream straight away. She thought her boyfriend had come in and put his hand over her so she he wouldn't wake up the parents who were sleeping in the next bedroom. It was only when she said, I love you, thinking again it was her boyfriend, that he leapt off and she reached up and touched his face and realised it wasn't her boyfriend. So she recounted that in great detail today. And strong and clear very clear in her recollection and I mean you could physically see um, this lady um, stealing herself for the for the you know, which I'd call it an ordeal um, because it would be um, you know the court was packed again so we got the impression that uh, uh, well certainly the, the, the lady's sort of closest supporters obviously knew it was coming today um, and yeah, I mean, when she walked into court, you could sort of see herself stealing herself. But once she got on the stand, she was clear, she was precise, she was meticulous in the detail that she went through. Um, I mean, she was just a really impressive witness mm-hmm. uh, in, in terms of a legal um, standpoint, but then uh, the, everything else that went with it. Um, and the fact that she chose to do it herself. So, I was going to say, why was she there as opposed to giving a statement? Yeah, so that's interesting. So right at the start, even before um, we knew for sure that this was going to be the witness, Mr Jovic, um, Mr Edwards, his barrister, got onto his feet and said, I just want to say something about the first witness. And he said, we have said for a long time that we don't need this witness to give evidence herself. We were happy for the statement mm. to be read in. We just want to make that point clear to the judge. And the judge said, well, yeah, I take that point on board. And then Miss Barbagallo stood up and basically said, Your Honour, this is this witness's positive preference to do this in person, you know, I think she wanted her day in court. She wanted, she? To, she wanted wow. to explain it all. And, um, of course, he's pleaded guilty to this charge. Well, yes. And that's the other thing. So there's no... There's no prejudice as such to, for her to give her evidence um, in person. Um, and Mr. Jovic did not ask one question of her, mm-hmm. so he, he was you know, good to his Wanted word. He didn't, 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 yeah. didn't cross-examine yeah. her at all. Mm. Um, yeah. So she, you're saying she was quite meticulous mm. in her evidence today. Can we talk through her evidence? Mm. Um, it's Valentine's Day, 1988. 
she's at home and, and what's happened? She's gone to bed that night or how's... Just step out her evidence for us. Yeah. She, sorry, Helen. Well, she, was, she mentioned that they might have had... He was distressed, her boyfriend, so she just naturally presumed when she woke up that he had come back to the house. So, so the she spent the evening it, with her boyfriend, she had spent she? the day, Valentine's yeah, Day. Yeah, the whole day. And, mm. I mean, her description was it, well, you know... We were hugging, been a bit of something We were hugging happened. and kissing all yeah. day. It had been a nice day. He'd shaved, you know, and then something's happened. She didn't go into much detail about that. Towards the end of the night, and he's left the house distressed so and he can't, yeah she thought it was him coming back yeah. so she didn't panic at first it was only so is she woke woken mm. by noises or what happens no next? she was woken by the physical presence Wait, yeah. of a man on top of her mm. so she i mean she even described it that you know I, I i was sleeping on my stomach with my hands under the pillow that's how i always mm. sleep that's how i still sleep now and then suddenly i felt this presence on top of me either side of me and I was you know I was woken up I was startled I, su I was surprised but as Ali said I wasn't shocked because in her sort of obviously she said she said it's yeah. okay I won't scream mm. thinking again it's her boyfriend yeah when he put the hand over her mouth she said it's okay I won't scream because again she's thinking all the time it's her boyfriend who apparently is her husband right now That's so correct. it was a yeah general feeling of, of tenderness for the guy and then she thought he'd come back but didn't want to wake the parents were sleeping in the next room it was only when she reached up and touched his face to stroke his face she said thinking again it's her boyfriend she felt this the stubble and it didn't feel like her boyfriend's face that's when she dug um, her nails in she um, dug she, her fingernail in yeah, yeah. so oh. she said it was the and it was in in that much detail i knew i knew my husband had boy boyfriend and had shaved that day because it was valentine's day I, I reached behind me so she'd been struggling um you know sort of shaking her uh, head from side to side to try and sort of loosen this this uh, you know what felt like an attack. She leaned back, felt the stubble, and realised at that moment that it wasn't her boyfriend. And even when he put that bit of fabric in her mouth, mm. she thought it was a bit of the doona. Yeah. So she wasn't so freaked. She, feels she wasn't freaking fabric out. over her face. She thought some fabric in her mouth, and she thought the doona had her doona had actually somehow come loose, and she'd got a mouth over it. So none of this was someone at frightened at first. It was only when she realised it was a stranger. And then he got off. Then she looked him at a man standing in the the doorway wearing a white, what she said, white nightie. Then mm. she started screaming, Dad, Dad, mm. Dad. And, mm. you know, they so came So after, after she's, she's dug, dug a nail, nail in, the, 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 the pressure is eased a little bit. Um, and then she described it as he just sort of lift, almost levitated himself off, landed with a light, I mean, and this is the type of detail, like landed light-footed on her carpeted bedroom and then um, she braced herself, awaiting what she thought might be another attack. She thought she was going to be punched or, or struck in some way. That didn't come. She looked over her shoulder and saw this sight of this six-foot-one figure in as almost as tall as the doorframe, oh. wearing a white cotton long-sleeve women's nightie. So this incident is obviously burned into her brain yes. because... Uh, I mean, we've said it before. She would have gone over the statement numerous times. She would have been proof. She would have discussed this with the prosecution. She would have gone through this with the police. But that's, it's a completely different environment to what she had to go through today. Yes. Uh, well, uh, what she chose to go through today. And the way she did it, it was obvious that every, every one of those details were uh, are, are seared into her brain in such a way that she didn't, she hardly stumbled at all. She hardly flubbed her words or got mixed up with the time or anything. It was just, it, as I say, it was 
it was just a really impressive piece of public yeah. speaking, if you want to put it like that, and luckily, for someone under so much pressure. Yeah. And luckily, he left behind the kimono. Well, that's the, the kimono and the black stockings because it was the kimono that actually linked the, right to the arrest of um, Bradley Edwards. Mm. So she has um, seen him there, and then, Ali, you mentioned that she started yelling, Dad, Dad, Dad. What's happened after that? Well, the parents came in and called the police. Um, it wasn't until, I believe, sometime later she would have found out, maybe not till he was identified with the kimono um, arrest, that she found out that she, knew, in fact, knew Bradley Edwards. He was a friend of her brother's. Mm. Uh, they'd gone to the same primary school, the same high school, mm. m- mixed in various same groups. But she would not have found that out till the, till every we all did till he was um, well, till presu- the kimono. Presumably, yeah. when he on the day he was arrested and, yeah. in, and charged yes. um, with mm. that crime, because that was one of the, um, as we said yesterday, Sarah's uh, the charge for Sarah's murder didn't come till quite much later in the legal process. But when he was charged with the, um, the the murders of Jane and Kira, he was also charged with the Huntingdale attack, yeah. which up until then we didn't really know anything about and he was also charged with the Karakata rape which we knew something about but on, on that on that day when Commissioner Carl Callaghan stood up and, and relayed all those charges to us um, that was the first time that it had been publicly linked by police the, the, the rape yep. and the um, and the two murders so so yeah I, I I mean obviously she she would have been given some notice by the police but not much given no. that he was only arrested on the t- on the 22nd of December and um and, char- and charged and appeared in court on the 23rd. So, I mean, 1988 to 2016, years. Um, 28 yeah. years yeah. of wondering. And then... I mean, Turns out he's a classmate. God knows what her yeah. reaction would have been when the police have knocked on her door and said, Bradley mm. Robert Edwards. I mean, the light bulb must have gone off, I suppose. Maybe, yeah. Some other bits and pieces on the bed, wasn't there? Yeah, black there was stockings. a black stockings knotted um, and, and, and another piece of material. Um, and what the prosecution will say about that was is the, um, you know, the, the build-up, the planning. Propensity. What, yeah, well, the, pla- <laughs> the planning, really, because mm. if, if you remember with the Karakata um, rape, which is also admitted to, there was um, this sort of pre-knotted piece of um, wire or um, you know string that he's taken with him then as as, as well um, uh, so that, I mean they will definitely uh, in the future and, and in previous hearings have pointed to that to say well look this this wasn't just the you know some random you know sort of spur of the moment thing this was he he, he planned to do this because he brought some of the tools mm, of the trade with, with him. him. Well, we've heard a lot about this idea that there would be this DNA evidence linked with the kimono to other situations, um, but he wasn't wearing the kimono, or we don't know we whether don't he know. was wearing he that ended at some up, point. Unless he had it on top, because he had when she saw him, he had she said like a long white nighty. Mm. It wasn't hers. He, yeah, well, it was certainly it, it was certainly on his person because she was asked specifically today, mm. did you did anyone in your family, anyone in your home own a, a, an item of clothing like that? She said no. Um, the, the stockings, she even no. made a s- mm. slight joke about you know does does anyone in the, your house own a pair of black stockings? She said I hope not. <laughs> um, but I mean, and we can talk about this with such certainty because Mr. Edwards has admitted it. So yes. he's admitted he was. That was him. Yep. Yes. He's admitted yep. there is no that question. is his kimono. Yep. And the link to the kimono and him 
was the DNA. And as Ali yes. alluded to, uh, through all the all this, the, the, the myriad steps getting to where we are um, today, that kimono was probably the biggest breakthrough of all because when, once they found that in the evidence box in the cold case, um, they were able to match that to uh, Kira and the and the Karakata victim, which led them to further investigations into Huntingdale. There was a break-in. There was fingerprints found. They ran the fingerprints up pop Mr. Edwards's name from the Hollywood Hospital attack, which we've um, discussed early in the week, and um, and 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 here we are. Um, it might be a good time just now because we're talking about this. We've got a question from a listener, uh, Sarah Brown, and she's asking. We often hear of trials where similar formative charges are suppressed as to not influence the jury or, in this case, the judge's decision on the matter before the court. This hasn't occurred in this trial. Why? We've had a lot of questions like this with people saying, how come these um, cases are being brought before the court? Well, you've mentioned it already. No jury. You cannot influence a judge. So that's why. Um, Although this has um, been very, very heavily covered, this trial... Um, there's always dangers there that um, you can perhaps influence a witness, as mm. was alluded to yesterday mm. when the woman said she was challenged by the defence that she had not mentioned Telstra in her first statement, but had only done so in one that was d- given a couple of years ago. And she said, oh, I may have been influenced by a newspaper article when he was arrested. So she's added, he said she's added the Telstra in afterwards. So there's that that um, type of thing that you've got to be we've got to be careful of also he's uh, he won't do the sentencing um if there was a jury you would never have heard of these charges no. we, we would have been suppressed and um that sentencing which he's alluded to now is being right towards the end of the trial and he's talking about legal argument to do a, a, the five charges that he's admitted to mm. um that's been pushed back to yeah. to later so this is this is the word that ali mentioned just a short time ago, propensity evidence. So, mm. and it, it's a legal, it's a, it's it's an illegal occurrence, which means that in certain circumstances, um, uh, judges in particular, but sometimes juries are allowed to hear um, of previous offences, but they've got to be very similar. They've got to be of such strong probative value, as they call it in court, um, to. Um, basically allow the full picture of the person um, who's on, on trial to occur. And we've obviously we've made many references to the pre-trial hearings, and one of the pre-trial hearings was just on propensity evidence. Yep. And the both sides had to stand up, Miss Barbara Gallo mostly, because she was the one who wanted to bring the evidence in, because she's the one who's having to prove all, this, all these um, allegations. Um, she had to stand up and say, "Your Honour, this is what we want to bring in, and this is why." And and it was and it would, it took days um, of arguments, and 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 it it included the Huntingdale attack, yep. it included the Karakata rape, it included what we previously referred to as the Huntingdale Prowler evidence, which when Mr. Edwards hadn't pleaded guilty to Huntingdale, they were going to bring all this batch of evidence about these nine or ten or eleven weird break-ins, it, it, all in the sort of one square kilometre. One of which was the theft of that kimono off mm. a washing line about two weeks before the break, the, the Huntingdale break-in. So Ali's absolutely right. In it, it, it's it's rare because when you get a jury, you want to keep them as pure as possible. You want them to just focus on what's said in court, on the evidence that's said in court. Um, And you don't want any outside influences, which is why um, 
the Cardinal Pell case. I mean, that's that's the case yeah. that everyone will know. And, and everyone was asking, well, why is it suppressed? Is it the church trying to keep it secret? No, it was a judge saying there's going to be two separate trials of two separate accusers. And so if the jury in this second trial, a potential jury in this second trial, hear all the stuff in the first trial, that's going to influence them to such a degree that there's no way they can have a a fair, fair trial, trial. Mm, so yeah. that's why that was kept secret it was nothing to do with you know the catholic church trying to keep it under wraps oh. and and if this had been a jury trial ali's absolutely right it, it, we probably wouldn't you, this none of this would probably be in public yeah. until it's actually heard in court none of the none of the pre-trial hearings would have been public or it would all been suppressed to 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 maintain the sanctity of the jury but in this case because it was a judge alone and because the judge was very aware of the public interest, he allowed all that pretrial stuff um, to be aired. And then he will make he made the decision. I think that's relevant. I think that's not. Mm -hmm. I mean, some listeners might remember there was a whole swag of stuff about some porn that was found in Mr. Edwards's house. The judge ruled all that out. And so we're not going to hear about that again. We probably won't report on it again because it's irrelevant to, 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 the, to the process that's going on. But today uh, he was okay to show us uh, the white station wagons, which were part of a very intensive police hunt. So we got, um, as Ali said, we got pictures of um, the car that Mr. Edwards owned before the um, Holden Commonwealth station wagon, which is basically the car that the um, prosecution going to say that Sarah got into. Um, it was it's slightly different. I mean, it's a, of a type, white station wagon, but this is a Toyota Camry rather than a Holden Commodore. Um, today, we also got um, the picture of a picture of Jane's watch mm -hmm. um, that was found um, uh, after um, or you know around the time um, that uh, that she went missing. Um, and we also got new pictures, police pictures of the, the the kimono. So those were the four that he released today they, that he felt would um, aid um, the, reporting. The, the media reporting. Because we're required almost to put legal submissions in every day. I didn't expect that. Yeah. I have to explain why mm, we need it, what need we're going to use it for. It's quite a thorough yeah. submission that yeah. we have to no, do. And it, and, mm. uh, <sighs> well, I mean, nothing about this case is... Um, ordinary is it? Not you know, at all. So everything about it is extraordinary. We've called it historic, and that's what it is—groundbreaking in every every which way. Yeah. Well, so yesterday um, we heard a lot about Sarah and her final day and her final movements and the last people to see her alive. Today there was um, Jane Rimmer's family and their statements. That's right. Yes, we had um, her parents give a statement. Her brother actually took the stand mm -hmm. and he testified his last words to her again on a long weekend. It was June 1996, um, a long weekend. He'd spoken to her and he identified the actual watch, which was later found in Wellard near her body. Um, he he was the last one to give, talk about her and we went on. We just got a bit uh, of a background on what had happened. She was a, a, a daycare worker in Nedlands, um, again, like all the girls, happy, no problems anywhere and um, obviously very trusting. Yeah. yeah. You know, this is what does my head in. You might have talked about this, the Telstra. It keeps coming up, coming up, coming up. I can't understand why the police didn't put out some sort of warning. They were happy to sort of like the whole taxi industry come under suspicion. Even if somebody had mentioned a Telstra logo on the white van, mm. it might have stopped someone from getting... I mean, that is quite a distinctive logo. Yeah. 
And um, yeah, and as Ellie said, so we got um, the, the statements of Jane's parents, Trevor and Jennifer were read in. Um, Trevor's actually no longer with us, unfortunately. So um, to hear a statement of a father who lost a daughter and then mm. lost his own um, battle with, with cancer um, many, many years later was was um, in interesting in itself. When were these statements made, Tim? Um, so Jennifer's, well, both Jennifer's Very and Trevor's mm. major statements were in the days after, and then right. Jennifer had done another little one just to confirm her earlier statement was made when it was. Um, and yeah, I mean, just just you, you just get the impression of a, another close family, uh, normal childhood, loved her work, good friends, great social life, enjoyed a beer, um, just your archetypal West Australian woman um, who um, then just vanished. And uh, as we as we said, um, with Sarah's um, close family sort of statements, you can you could sort of sense the bewilderment in in the the raw words that they were telling the police. And then Adam's testimony in person today, he was very he was very matter of fact. I mean, didn't go into too much detail, um, but um, you know, I mean, the fact that he he had a memory of of Jane going to her parents' house. The day before, to get her get her washing done and get a feed, and he just said, "Well, you know, she liked freebies, as as <laughs> as any young twenty three year old just starting out does. Um, still, sort of lean on mum and dad quite a lot." Because as you remember back, it was only when Jane disappeared that the police started to look at a pattern. Mm. After Sarah, I'm, I remember all the reporters were out there where they had her photograph up. They thought she had just gone missing. And her sister yesterday put in a missing persons report and read that out. Mm -hmm. It wasn't until Jane went that um, there seemed to be, hey, she looked a bit like the, you know, Sarah Spears. Police are very reluctant to mention the word serial killer. I found that over the Bernies and other cases, they, I don't know whether it's a strategy, they don't want to be focused on one thing, but mm -hmm. serial killer never came into the picture until well after Jane and then Kira. Yeah. That was the, yeah. the definite one. But with Sarah, um, I, they were putting out posters. They thought she just maybe had gone off for a couple of days or so. It was it was quite quite awful, the search for her. It's almost, um, you know, it seems like the two girls that we've heard their last days of, Sarah and Jane, Jane their days seemed quite similar, their last days. You know, they've both, these young girls, That's they've it. gone mm. to the pub for a drink. They've both ended up in this place called Claremont. Mm. Same as Kira too, um, yeah. yeah. And that, and those are the similarities that basically, the, the, the absolute stack of similarities that the prosecution are going to point to and say it couldn't have been, there can't be another person out there this is the prosecution's argument there can't be another person out there um driving a telstra well do, do uh, you know well, what are the chances basically mm, i mean mm, that, that, that i mean that's the prosecution's mm. sort of ultimate circumstantial case is what are the chances when was the alarm raised with jane when did is that in the statements when yeah it was the um she was supposed to come for sunday lunch well I both think. families are such close families that they miss them straight away mm. they mm. were meant to do things the very next day some families if they're gone for a week you might think oh well they've yeah. gone off with their friends but no these were very very close families they were both i think sarah was meant to turn up for lunch the next day as was with jane so they knew right. within 24 hours mm. that um they hadn't come home yeah 
And they obviously, I guess that was the day well, they, they called police on the Sunday. Well, I, I, it was a long weekend, so whether the police, like with Sarah, they, they don't jump straight into thinking it's a murder. They think, oh, she'll turn up, she's gone away with her friend, she's, you know, that mm. sort of thing. They don't react. It was only after Jane that they think, started looking, I think. Um, from memory, reading the archived copy of the West Australian at the time, it was that, I mean, that Monday, um, the... When the coverage in, in the newspaper at the time was just from the Monday was just off the charts because, yeah. I mean, it, it was just obvious the the similarities between the cases: young girls, blonde, slim, attractive, Claremont missing yeah. weekend. And that's when we start to link it. I remember getting a call from Howard Gretton at the time saying, who's now with the police, he said, another girl, have a look at them. They look the same. Yeah. And they've both gone from the same area, which is my area. So he rang me and I said, this yep. is my neighbourhood. And he said, have a look at this. This can't be a coincidence. Were you linking it in the media we before were. the police? We were. Yes. We were. Yes. And I think, I mean, during the trial, even though, even though we're in, uh, 10 days in, I, I, I think we've learned enough about the investigation that... That on the surface the police might have been being very careful, but I, I think it's I think it was becoming obvious to them quite early on that they were dealing with something completely, uh, completely out of the ordinary. I found it very interesting. One of the witnesses today was a woman who worked at Telstra, but yes. she was a hairdresser. Why was she significant? Well, the hair. I mean, we've discussed the. Gen- but also, gen- she worked for Telstra. Well, and what she had to say she didn't wear blue fibres. What in. are the chances? <laughs> yes. Yeah. So this yeah. is the hairdresser that Jane had booked an appointment with on the morning before she went missing. Um, she kept that appointment. She had her hair washed and cut, and um, and you know, and she was obviously very memorable to, to to this lady who gave evidence today. And there's obviously a couple of things significant of that. The, the hair. So mm-hmm. in 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 the distant future, or maybe not too distant future, we're going to hear a lot about Jane's hair and particularly the fibres that were in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and what the prosecution will point to is that, well, I mean, they couldn't have been that long-standing fibres in there because she'd had her hair washed and cut less than, you know, 12 hours before she went missing. But this hairdresser just happened to work at Telstra as well, but not as a not as a technician climbing up poles, but as a as a as a retail salesperson basically. And so, it was a very clever question from um, Mr. Jovic. He stood up and said, "You mentioned you worked for Telstra. Did you wear a uniform?" <laughs> was it because blue? there's one <laughs> blue fibre that mm. the, the prosecution will allege was in Jane's hair, which matches these these Telstra yakka shorts, stroke pants. And if she had said Oh yeah, yeah, we always they used to give us a uniform to work in the shop. I don't know what would have happened, but there would have been a gasp go around the courtroom. But she mm. said, "No, we just we just wore our civvies and to work, yeah. and they let us wear what we wanted." Um, well, maybe before we leave um, for this week's last podcast, we could just recap some of the evidence that we've heard this week and some of those things that people have found very interesting. And I guess one was what we were just talking about the the fact that police were looking into these Telstra cars decades ago yeah so that's I think that's going to become uh, that's just going to be a running theme throughout the trial um, what Mr Edwards was driving when he was driving it um, and once again it goes back to the goes back to the fibres um, particularly well, only for Kira and Jane obviously um, and um, and it, there will be a lot of talk about um, inserts and footwells and upholstery because that is where the fibres come from, or so to say the prosecution. We've certainly raked over his entire history. We heard 
everything from his shown everything from his birth certificate right through all of his yep. rosters, his applications, his pay slips, pay slips everything. <laughs> the prosecution is putting everything out there that can possibly be challenged. Also, um, very interesting this week was hearing from these Telstra living witnesses, these women who were, you know, offered lifts and took lifts with a, a man in a Telstra car. Yeah, um, and we'd heard a lot about them, but um, until you actually hear, uh, you know, back to back to back, all their separate accounts of different mm. nights, um, but there were striking similarities between them, you've got to say. Um, late at night, Stirling Highway was mentioned, you know, over and over and over, white car, Telstra logo, yeah. um, and, the you know, the description of the man was broadly similar. Um, but... There were a couple of holes um, mm. punched in those um, accounts as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, particularly, the, the, we've mentioned it earlier in the week, the identikit picture, which some say looks like him, uh, some say don't. Um, this brings us to a question that has um, come up from a lot of listeners. We've been sent an enormous amount of emails about this one. Um, so I'm just going to give you the question from Linton Jones, which really sums up a whole lot of listeners' questions. And he says, I'm wondering if the Telstra living witnesses have been asked to identify the person who picked them up. If so, what was the result? Did they point to the accused or does that only happen in movies? No, that only happens in movies because we're talking about the accused 30, 25 years on. Yes. It would have looked nothing like, well, none of the witnesses look like what they look like when you were 20. These people were all in their 20s. Now they're all in their 50s. Yes. They're, they're bank managers. They're uh, heads of CEOs of companies. They're, um, there's no way you would have been able to point to him and say yes. that's him. A week later, yes. I Not think 23 years later. People have this idea that, you know, someone stands in the courtroom and says, and is this the man no. that you remember from no. 30 years ago? I mean, it no. would have been a lovely And it doesn't wrap moment. up in an hour and a half either. <laughs> no. <laughs> Unfortunately not. No. The short answer to the question is no, they weren't asked. But I, I think that, that, that wasn't um, someone not doing their job. I think it might have been someone who was doing their job. And what was um, Bradley Edwards' demeanour in court this week overall? Pretty well the same, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was more as we said. It was more animated at the start of the week. He's been taking notes all week. Um, I watched him quite closely today when the Huntingdale victim was giving her evidence, and she, he, he, he looked down. Yeah, he yeah. was looking down, mm. stock still, yep. stock yes. still, not a movement. Didn't, didn't. Maybe well, he didn't look up at didn't, her. Didn't, no, didn't, no, didn't he, acknowledge her. Was listening yeah. very intently, but but wasn't you know. Um, wasn't staring or no, you know, any, anything that could be you know see, seen to be um, anything other than what he's been most of the trial. Actually, it's just his colleagues that he's shown a bit of interest, but he's watched them walk out, mm -hmm. and they've just been ones who he's worked with over the years and had drinks with. Mm. Well, week two has obviously been nothing short of extraordinary. I think if week one was um, dramatic and and there were bombshells. I think week two was quite, two was quite emotional yeah. and yeah, grueling. Yeah, it was a massive yeah. week. I mean, we and I don't think even the lawyers expected to get through that many witnesses. Yeah. Um, the sort of court watchers certainly didn't. Um, but they are making good progress. And and Miss Barbara Gallo said yesterday that she was quite happy with the speed it was going. But she warned us all again that once we hit the DNA, we're going to slow, we'll slow right down. down. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you both for all your hard work this week. It has been gruelling. Um, thanks to everyone for listening in. And we'll be back on Monday with week three of the trial. If you'd like to contact us in the meantime, you can get us at Claremont Podcast 
at wanews.com.au and we'll chat Monday. This podcast was hosted by Natalie Bongiolo, produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Audio files were provided from the archives of the Seven Network and the West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au.